Welcome to the Exhibit A podcast. Hello and welcome to Exhibit A. Uh, we're going to talk to you today about some additional interesting topics, things that we've never talked about before. Uh, today I've decided that we're going to uh, have a discussion about staying out of dependency court. There's a lot of family law litigants who, for some reason or another, get a knock on the door from a dependency court investigator. They freak out, uh, really kind of for good reason, because of the things that can happen to people when they go into dependency court. And as family law attorneys, we have to deal with that. We, we, feel, we feel like it's our duty to help the clients navigate the, the process and uh, in having a good discussion on this topic, I thought of no other person to bring in than Danny Leonetti. Danny uh, works with me, and uh, you should know that Danny, prior to coming to our law office, had a variety of experiences uh, as an attorney. And one of the ones that really strike me is, is that he was a dependency court attorney for a few years up in Fresno, right, Danny? That's correct. Okay. Well, welcome. Today's topic is, is going to be, uh, I think, interesting for the people that have an interest in how to stay out of Department and Children and Family Court Services Court, dependency courts. Um, two, two different types of courts, right? You have family court, which is completely different than the dependency court. We practice in family court, and that's with people that are divorcing. They have ch- child custody issues. But uh, dependency court is, is something entirely of its own, a lot of times it involves some pretty extreme cases, right? I mean, in a dependency courtroom, you'll frequently see some things that will bring tears to your eyes um, uh, regarding children, such as uh, neglected children or abused children, uh, huge drug dependency cases, things of that nature. Uh, but sometimes in our, in our world, our clients sometimes slip over into that because of sometimes false uh, accusations or things that uh, they didn't know that would cause them to go there. Um, so I thought we would talk to you t- today about you know some of the things that people do or should not do to avoid having to go over there. Because once you're there, you're there for a long time usually, right? Well, um, you know, you hope hopefully not. Right. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of children that have grown up in the system. Um, you know, there are statutory timelines in which we try to get it as speedy as a resolution as possible. But the reality is if somebody comes into the dependency, uh, in the dependency court with a drug, pro, uh, a drug issue, drug issues don't get resolved right away. Right. You know, it takes a while to overcome that and, and be capable of parenting again. And, you know, that's the same with anger issues. If, if, if there's a, an emotional issue, um, that requires counseling and requires parents to work on themselves, those aren't going to happen overnight. And the dependency court isn't going to release the children back into their care until they're fully confident um, in the safety of going through with that plan. So, yeah, it's uh, the cases are generally going to last, you know, if, depending on the disposition, uh, a year uh, easily. Um, that's not always the case, but... Uh, yeah, we've seen some quick resolution in dependency court where they b- were brought back into family court. But normally we want to avoid dependency court because those hearings could go on and on, lots of continuances and things of that nature. So going back to the things that people do, I'm thinking just off the top of my head that some of the cases that I've had were 
parties were going towards the dependency court. Sometimes they got there. Sometimes we were able to speak to the county council and smooth things over, you know, and, and uh, tell them, you know, that this might not be the case for them. But, uh, you know, drugs, we already talked about that. Physical abuse is obviously one, right? And we see cases where uh, people are using corporal punishment on their children and somebody calls the cops, you know, and next thing you know it, there's a caseworker out there talking to people. Um, then there's the one that I think is most common that I've seen is, is the failure to protect, you know, and that's a case where maybe our parties are in an argument and domestic violence occurs in the presence of the children and somebody calls the DCFS and next thing you know it, you know, they're wondering whether the victim is actually going to get a restraining order or protect the children in some way. Um, can you think of any other ones that you might see commonly in, in family court where they could slip over? I mean, I think I got it. Maybe it, maybe molestation. Yeah. We, don't, we don't see too many of those. Well, you know? uh, unfortunately, um, molestation is something that happens. And, you know, when you talk about failure to protect, uh, if, if you know that somebody um, has been convicted or, or has a propensity for something like that and you don't do anything about it, that's a very clear failure to protect. Um, um, and I think you've touched on the main ones, but uh, again, anything that's that's going to put the, the child in danger, um, I've seen a lot of these cases and I've seen, um, I guess, actually uh, starvation, for lack of a better word. I mean, not providing food, um, not providing adequate care and shelter for your children. Um, and then one thing that we do get a little bit of a crossover is not providing adequate medical care. Um, and this, uh, unfortunately, you know, with teenagers and, uh, you know, I think a little bit higher propensity to attempt suicide or, you know, harm themselves, uh, you need to make sure that these children, whatever their age, be it teenagers or otherwise, have appropriate access to counseling, care, and medication if they need it. Um, if somebody um, demonstrates or, or says that they, they are thinking about harming themselves, it's extremely important to get that child into therapy, um, not only for the sake of getting them appropriate medical care, but um, if, if you're ignoring any kind of cry for help or signal that a child needs therapy and would benefit from therapy, uh, your child could be subject to dependency court for um, you know, not keeping them safe and not getting them the medical treatment they need. Um, on the fringes, I've seen um, kids uh, be placed in the dependency system because their parents uh, wouldn't get them di diabetic medication. Um, and I, I learned quite a bit. I, I had no idea how serious, you know, diabetes was, especially with a child, um, and how important it is to regulate that. So uh, really any medical condition that requires care um, that needs to be followed through, and the courts are going to consider uh, therapy um, just the same as they are, whether it's diabetes or, or anything else that the child needs. So it's it's very important because you know the, these children need they need help. You yeah. know they need their parents, and, and they need uh, access to the appropriate uh, medical professionals to make sure that they can continue to thrive and, and not have any harm. Okay, so. My brother, I think I might have told you this, um, who may be viewing this this uh, segment, he's a supervisor in Illinois of the equivalent of the Child Protective Services. He's He's been working there pretty much all of his adult life. He and I, every once in a while, talk about 
family law attorneys versus you know the Department of Children and Family Services, and uh, kind of cracks me up because he sees um, you know my profession almost as the opposing party in a way, the bad guys, you know. But uh, one thing that he said that that really uh, meant a lot to me was is that the department really doesn't want to keep children. I mean, their goal in most cases is to return the children to their parents and to you know, make sure that the children are safe and everything, but they they want to keep people out of the system if that's possible. Um, was that your experience working there as well, that it wasn't like this onerous agency that was trying to bear down on and take it over these kids? Yeah, nobody nobody wants to take children from their parents or their care provider. Nobody wants to do that. Um, in California, the Welfare and Institution Code, um, well, first of all, it's supposed to be co- collaborative court. Um, I, I know all parties really should cooperate, but um, I found the courts in Fresno really tried to live by that, and they really tried to work together to find a solution. Um, the department doesn't see, you know, a mother or father with a substance abuse problem as an adverse party. I, I really believe they saw them as somebody who needed help and they needed reunification services. Um, but what a court will do is a court is going to make a, a concurrent plan for the child uh, in case the parent cannot alleviate the circumstances that that brought us here. So if they came in with a drug problem and they can't fix the drug problem within a certain amount of time, it's not fair and it's not healthy for the child to not know who they're going to live with for an extended period of time. A child needs consistency. And the younger the child, uh, the more they need that consistency. So the code is set up, and, and I understand that that it sometimes leads to harsh results, but the court is set up and the laws are set up for reunification um, depending on the child or the children's age, whether it be 6 months, 12 months, 18 months. But after 24 months, 2 years is really the end point. And if the circumstances... Uh, that, that led to the child being put in the dependency court has not been alleviated, the court loses a lot of discretion to keep these cases going. And in reality, after 12 or 18 months of services, uh, at some point the judge is going to say enough is enough. These children need to go with somebody who's going to be able to, to meet their needs. And again, nobody enjoys when the cases, you know, wind up a certain way. Um, but but it's really it's it's about balancing the interests and trying to find what's ultimately best for the children. And you know, I, I think a lot of people would agree that consistency, uh, you know, knowing where they're going to live, that's that's in many cases uh, what's best for the children. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think what you were saying at the end is you're putting it nicely, but at the end, people could lose their children. Well, they absolutely can't. Yeah. Uh, and if, they they, if they're not complying with the court's orders and doing what was, they're expected to do, they could lose it. Fortunately, we, we haven't seen any of those cases here. But one thing that I want to tell you is is I, I did have some case, one case in particular that is worthy of, uh, of mentioning, and that is is a lady who uh, was the victim of domestic violence. And this was like pretty hardcore stuff where she was beaten up on a regular basis by her husband. They had two children. And uh, in this one uh, instance, she was getting uh, back from a trip from Switzerland. And she and the children had been over there. She got uh, 
to the airport. She was met by her husband and in the car driving from LAX to her home in Santa Monica. Uh, he started going off on her and he started beating her in front of the kids. So much so that she had facial damage and, and stuff. She didn't call the police. And, uh, and I think when they got home, uh, he continued the beating and he, he pulled a weapon on her. And it was pretty severe stuff. She still didn't call the police. Uh, eventually, the police found out about the incident. I think it was because the kids were in school and they were talking to people. Uh, and what ended up happening is, is that family wound up in dependency court, and they were there for more than a year. Uh, and it was very, very painful for my client because of the fact that it takes a lot of time in dependency court, and they make you do some things, you know, take classes and stuff. But she was actually under the microscope for the failure to call the police and report this that had happened in front of the, the children. So, you know, I think that's one classic example, you know, of uh, what can happen. Now, coming out of family court, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, coming out of dependency court, there's orders that are called what? Exit orders. Exit orders. And that's really important for family law uh, attorneys and judges because of the fact that these exit orders are very powerful. Um, that usually what, what it means or what it always means is that the exit orders will remain in effect unless there's a change of circumstances of some sort. Uh, so they come into family court, and those are the rules. And sometimes those rules are very difficult, or those orders are difficult to modify because of that. Um, when you were in the other world, when you were doing the dependency work, did you know that some of your cases would cross over into family law and those orders would continue? Well, you do know that. Um, obviously, if, if they went to family law, they didn't come back to us. I mean, that's a whole separate courtroom. So, you know, we wish them well. We hope to not see them again. Uh, the reality is those exit orders are important not just for family law, but for people that get back into dependency. Because, unfortunately, you do see some people come back. Repeaters. Repeat yeah. offenders. Yeah. Um, you can modify... Um, orders in family law too they you don't always have exit orders but um yeah first of all i think going back to something you mentioned earlier that i want to clarify we've had success uh here um getting cases dismissed at the disposition phase yeah that is the exception not the rule uh, most cases are going to be sustained at the at the disposition or jurisdiction will be sustained and there will be a plan and the one-year timeline, that starts running from the disposition. That doesn't even start running from the detention hearing. So without getting into the details, um, chances are if a case is open, it's going to be open for over a year. So that's that's going to be a perfect segue into the next question I want to talk to you about, and that is, is what happens if you come home from work and you see a little card under your door that says, uh, we're from the Department of Children and Family Services, we want to talk to you. And let's let's make it a little more meaningful. Let's say that it's that person that I represented. And she's beaten up pretty badly. She didn't commit domestic violence. And she loves her kids and she takes care of her kids well. But she failed to report the domestic violence to the uh, police or to the department. And suddenly, and maybe a week or two later, she comes home from work and she sees that card on her door. Uh, do you have any tips for her? Well, as, as I think you probably already know, um, you want to speak with an attorney um, before speaking with the department. Uh, you absolutely have a right to have an attorney present. And something you need to know is that 
anything that that social worker hears, anything that goes into their report, um, that's going to be admissible evidence in the dependency hearing. And dependency, unlike uh, uh, other courts that, that people are familiar with, um, I don't know if there's any other court that has uh, a hearsay exception as the one in dependency. Anything that the social worker says is uh, and puts, excuse me, <laughs> anything that the social worker puts in a report, that's going to be admissible evidence. So uh, any statements that you make are going to be admissible. Any, any statements that the principal makes of the school, any police officer, any third-party witnesses, any neighbors, any other children, those are all going to go into the report. Oftentimes, um, you know, it's a highly emotional situation for the parents. Um, things get misinterpreted, misconstrued. Sometimes they, they, they fail the attitude test too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, that really shouldn't factor in as much as it does, but social workers are people too. And if they yeah. see somebody um, in a highly emotional state, and look, I don't think you can blame somebody for being in a highly emotional state uh, when there's potentially going to be a dependency investigation or a dependency case, any kind of social worker investigation. Look, these are people's children. So in my personal opinion, uh, it's not unreasonable that people have uh, you know, highly emotional reactions. Uh, but that being said... Um, it's always, you know, it's always preferable to get an attorney. Um, I always recommend that yeah. just to make sure that the questions are fairly, uh, you know, an attorney is probably not going to tell you, you know, not to answer anything. I mean, depending on the situation, just having an attorney present would be important to make sure there's no misinterpretations and nothing's going to get misconstrued. Um, that's number one is, is contact an attorney if you have that uh, um, if you can, you know, if you can get to an attorney and have an attorney present, hire an attorney. Number two, know that anything that you say, just as if this was a criminal proceeding, can and will be used against you. We'll be using the criminal proceeding, too, because they, typically the police will get copies or they'll be privy to some of the um, information that was given during these interviews, and they could put those in their police reports as well. Yeah, they, there may or may not be a, be a subsequent criminal investigation. Um, oftentimes there are. Uh, in my experience, the dependency court's not going to go out of their way to make sure the parents are charged. I mean, their job is really to do what's best for the children. Um, but there's nothing preventing the DA or anybody from getting a copy of that. And that's my point, so. is, is that anything you say can be used against you, you know, and you have no confidential communications when these people come out to your house and they want to talk to you. You tell them, you know, I'm sorry I did it, but I did it. And it was a criminal offense. Uh, that could easily be passed over to the DA, and there's no protection there or anything like that. Um, in some cases, I think in a lot of cases, uh, we've seen, I'm not saying you know, proportionally it's more than others, but we have seen false claims made to the Department of Children and Family Services where parents are trying to get a leg up on the other parent in a custody dispute. Um, you've seen those before, I presume. Absolutely. Yeah, and in those cases, I think, uh, would you agree with me that having an attorney is even more important because you want to make sure that, uh, you know, like you said, is, is that, that there's not a misinterpretation of what took place or what your client's position is because of the emotions. <laughs> well, just to make sure we're on the same page, don't get an attorney and then make a false claim. Right, <laughs> I mean, right, right, right. Obviously, that's the last thing you want to yeah. do in any legal matter. 
uh, first and foremost, always tell the truth. And, you know, if you're thinking about making a false claim... That, that wasn't my point. I'm not, no, 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 way, no, no. No, I wouldn't say that. But what I'm saying, though, is, is that if false claims are made against your client and they go in and they're, like, pissed off, right? They're going to go in there and a lot of times they're not going to give the investigator a real view of who they are because they're angry and their emotions are taking the best of them. And that's where the attorney, I think, could come in because the attorney could tell them, hey, this is what your affect ought to be. And if they start, you know, firing off in, in the presence of the investigator, the, the attorney could intervene in some way. Well, there's two points there. Um, first of all, there's you have to protect yourself against people who make a false claim. And look, it can happen if you have a bad neighbor. It can happen if you have a parent trying to get a leg up in dependency. Yeah. It can happen if you have a child who doesn't know what he's saying and, and maybe misconstrues something. And doesn't I mean, know what the consequences of their false report is. And, 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 you know, because hearsay is so prevalent in the system, you could have a teacher hear a four- or five-year-old uh, say something about how he was going to get killed or going to get hit. He may very well be, he or she may be quoting a movie maybe talking about something that they saw on the street or on TV. And so, you know, just sorting out what's actually happened when you have children making statements and potentially uh, people who have uh, um, other means, nefarious means, uh, ulterior motives making statements. Uh, it's very important, I think, to have an attorney to, to really have the social worker start critically thinking. Could this have even happened? Is it is it even physically possible? Were, were the people there? Uh, is there some exp other explanation? And I know you didn't want to go there, but I kind of want to go there with respect to false claims because I've had to interview children, and I've had children tell me, you know, this isn't true. My 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 parent, one or the other, they told me to say this, mm. and it's happened to me on more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, I mean, you get really fired up when you're in this system and you're, and you're trying to do all that you can uh, to help parents and children um, who are really in a tough spot, and then you find out that uh, somebody is, is putting their kids unnecessarily into the system, uh, using valuable resources that could otherwise go to other parents, and subjecting their children to the system, um, all based on lies, all to get an advantage. I mean, I can't stress enough you know, uh, you get angry, you know, and, and kids are not liars. Uh, to anybody out there who's potentially thinking they can get a leg up, um, your children are not very good actors. Um, as attorneys every day, I mean, we're pretty good at spotting a liar and, and seeing mm -hmm. the signs. Um, if if you think that you're an adult and you can fool an attorney, I mean, maybe you can, but um, and, and if that comes out... Um, you know, I mean, I mean, you're not going to gain your advantage. Yeah. It's just going to cause a lot of problems, and at the end of the day, the truth is going to come out. So. Yeah, good, good. Well, I think that we've talked a lot about dependency. Uh, I want to change the topics a little bit. Uh, I want to change it to something a little lighter, and that is a new change in law that many of our viewers probably have not heard about. Um, the judges are given discretion over pet custody in California. Uh, apparently, Governor Brown signed into law not too long ago, uh, giving the judges the discretion of weighing such factors as uh, who feeds them, who takes them to the vet and walks, and who protects them in order to determine which spouse gets to keep the dog. Uh, and I think that this is a, a really interesting topic because uh, so many people 
love their dogs so much that you know there are fights over this that we see in family court. Uh, one of the um, things that I remember in one case that I had, uh, we asked our clients to fill out their schedules of assets and debts, and you know they list each item. You know the family residence valued at four hundred thousand, the the car eighteen thousand dollars, bank accounts. Oh, I got twenty thousand in the bank. Okay, list of your other valuable assets, pet. And one of my clients put next to it, uh, invaluable or, you know, impossible to, to value, you know, or something to that effect, you know. I mean, people, and they fought over this, these dogs and stuff. But, you know, prior to any change in the law, the court kind of has to or had uh, looked at pets as just property, you know, and really struggled with, you know, how to deal with dogs. And I've seen some situations where, uh, the courts have ordered the parties to share the pets during the pendency of the dissolution. And guess what happened during that time period? Give me your best guess. Um, they decided to stay together <laughs> for the sake of the dog. No, no, no. Uh, they started fighting over the dog. And you've done so many uh, custody cases where you've seen children uh, being fought over, you know, disputes over at the uh, place to, uh, to change custody, uh, the hours, who gets them on the holidays, who gets them on birthdays. Well, guess what? It happens with pets as well. And I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are about this new legislation uh, and the potential litigation that could be uh, a part of all of this. Well, uh, you know, I, I think that really any uh, anything that gives a judge more power to take care of this issue, it's an issue. Um, I, I don't think there's an extensive body of law on this. Um, but, yeah, I mean. If well, there's, there's no well, this We're going into new law here, man. We haven't seen this yet. So what, can you think of any problems that are going to arise? Or well, are, you, are you just completely in favor of this? Uh, yeah, I'm in favor of the judges having discretion to do what they think is right. What I think is interesting is, you know, as you know, uh, children aren't split up because uh, when you have multiple children, it's important to, uh, you know, continue and, and uh, facilitate the bond between siblings. But here, uh, it looks like in this article, they recommend splitting up the dogs. So, oh, my gosh. And yeah, some people I'm would like say that's wrong. Yeah, um, you know, so you're never you're never going to get a case where, you know, one spouse gets one child and the other gets another. It's going to be pretty rare, and the kids would have to be older and uh, extenuating circumstances. But here it looks like if there's two animals, um, one gets one, the other gets the other, and then the dogs are going to have to make new, uh, new doggy friends, apparently. Yeah, and let's just make clear that this new law doesn't say that there's going to be shared custody post-divorce. I mean, at least I don't believe that's what, maybe the, maybe the court will have discretion with that, you know, but I'm thinking like, you know, you've been a minor's counsel, you've spoken to the kids about their preferences, you know, you've kind of determined, you know, hopefully we're not going to see that with, with dogs, you know, people trying to trying to relate to the dogs and bring them into their office. And Well, I guess for preference, you'd put uh, one party on one side, the other party on the other, Ooh. and you each call them and <laughs> determine, uh, determine preference of the animal that way. You're good, man. I tell you what, you should have been called into like the, uh, the council to, to give some tips on this. Maybe in the future you'll be writing some law on this. Well, thank you very much, Danny. It's been great having you on the show. And thank you to all our viewers for joining us again on Exhibit A. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Exhibit A is produced by David Lindley at the law offices of Donald P. Schweitzer in Pasadena, California. For more information, visit us online at PasadenaLawOffice.com and all social media platforms.